It's because even back then, men wouldn't ask for directions. That's why. Now, I, I know that, you know, that's typical of a lot of men. I was reading a poll, actually, this week, and it was, it was kind of cracking me up. But this poll, it uh, surveyed quite a few men and women, thousands. They found, this is, this is horrible, actually. They found that the average man in a year will drive around 276 miles because they are lost and not asking for directions. Added up. I can't believe that. This poll said that 25% of men would wait at least an half an hour being lost before they would ask. <laughs> half hour. That just blows my mind. Because I, I personally, I'm not like that. I will ask. But, but I understand. I mean, a lot of guys are like that. Then 12% in the poll refused to ask for any help at all. And then 5% said even if they asked, they wouldn't trust the person's directions anyway. <laughs> I don't, know, I don't know what that really says about people, but uh, in the same poll, 74% of women said they have no problem asking for directions. And um, I don't know, it just cracked me up. That whole thing cracked me up. <clears throat> just a quick poll, though. How many of you do, just don't like asking for directions? Okay, a few of us, be honest. I know there's been a lot of times where I, you know, there, <laughs> not trying to parse words, but there are times where, you know, I've had one of my kids, or I don't, I don't remember Nicole ever doing this, but maybe one of the kids would say, Dad, are we lost? Now, there is a difference between being lost and being lost. I may not know exactly where I'm trying to get, but I know where I am. That's, there, that is different. That is different. I mean, I know I'm not lost. I know where I'm at. I just don't know where I'm supposed to be. That's all. It's different. Those are different things. Uh, I used to put models together with my dad. Did anybody else do this back in the day? Remember the first time... Um, that I, oh, the first time I remember, I mean, we put models together ever since I was really little, but, you know, going and buying model glue, remember the glue? And then remember the first time we went and it was locked up? And I remember my dad explaining why it was locked up. And I thought, oh my goodness, who would do that? But anyway, that glue, I remember distinctly, we lived in Pensacola, Florida. My dad was doing officer candidate school there. And I remember putting a model together and he wasn't home. And I begged my mom to do it myself. I was six. Hello. So not only did I have a lot of pieces stuck to the table forever. Remember model glue back then? I mean, it wasn't like today. Stuck forever. But in the end, I built whatever. I was building a little, uh, well, it was a ship, like a battleship. And in the end, I had all these pieces left over. And I just, I didn't need those. You know how that, you remember how that is? Okay. Well, it's funny that way, because if you follow the directions, there is a place for every piece and they all do matter. Even if you can't see them, you know, they might be inside the superstructure of the model or whatever, but they do matter. I remember putting, you know, kids' toys together, and things have changed to some degree. It's not quite like that. Now the struggle on Christmas is just getting all the packaging off of the toys. I mean, that stuff is ridiculous. Some of that plastic, I don't know what it's, I mean, I know it's plastic, but I mean, that stuff is tough. You have to get like a, you know, a crowbar to get into some of those things. It's ridiculous. And then Ikea, I heard some people making fun of Ikea recently just about how they would never buy furniture from Ikea just because they have to put it together. And uh, not too long ago, um, Clarence is in the, the, um, he's in the financial peace class, but he and I were at someone's house trying to help them. They're moving, and we're helping them set up some beds. <laughs> and they, it was an Ikea bed, and I said, well, where are the instructions? And they're like, well, we don't have it. I go, well, what do you have? And I go, well, we have all these parts. 
So it was like a puzzle. He and I spent like a half hour just trying to figure out, because it's like putting together a puzzle. This is what it should look like. So we were going on their website to try to get a picture. Does this what it looked like before? Because it would be so nice to have the instructions on some of these things. And if you follow them, it works. And if you don't, you're going to run into trouble somewhere along the line. That's just how it is. I was talking with one of our church members uh, he's going to have his knee replaced in a week. And as I was talking to him, I've you know, walked through a few of you with that, that experience recently, and uh, he's already had one. So this is what he told me. He said, I know what to expect, and I know what to do. He said, and my doctor told me that I am the poster child for following his instructions, and I'm going to do it, and I'll do exactly what he says, exactly how he says it, and I'll be fine. And I sat there and I thought, I wish I was more like that. Because every time I've had a major surgery, I've either pushed it too hard or something. Like, for instance, I had my left knee, I I tore my ACL snow skiing. And then I distinctly remember asking the doctor, you know, when, when it would be okay. And he said six months. I know he said that. So what happened was I, I skied six months later. And then when I went for a follow-up, he said, you did what? And then he went into all this explanation because, you know, what they do is they take, they take the, well, in mind, they took the middle part of your patellar tendon right there. They cut it out with a bone chip from the top two, and then they drill a hole through and then screw those bone chips into the, your femur and your shin. Yeah, I know. And so when they do that, he said, yeah, it's in there, but you've got to wait like a, you know, a full year or whatever. Isn't that right? You're a physical therapist. For the bone to grow over the screws. He goes, you could have just pulled those right out. Like, oh, okay. I didn't intentionally not follow his directions, but there have been other times, though, when I've just pushed an injury afterward, and, you know, you think you're fine, so you do more than you should. It was probably, well, it was right after we moved to Minnesota. Remember, Nicole, it was probably, so that would have been June. So I'd had a a prosthetic for uh, four months, and I ran out of gas in my truck. Which, because I bought a new truck and the gas gauge, I was not familiar with it. And I, who would sell a truck with it empty? I just thought it was full. I, why would you sell it? Like, I mean, now I know why. But at the time, I thought it's gotta have. Anyway, it ran out of gas, and it and it coasted. I thought I could coast in farther, and it coasted right in front of a, a fire hydrant. So I'm thinking, what am I supposed to do? You know, we're new in town. I don't even know who to call. So what did I do? I pushed my truck. Of course, what would you do? I did the same thing. So of course, then I. My knee swells up and like, uh, you got to follow the instructions. Because if you don't, especially with an injury like that, if you push it too far, you're going to either re-injure it or slow down your recovery. And then if you don't push, if you don't follow the instructions and don't do enough, then you're not going to heal on track and your muscles won't get strong enough. And you, again, you're setting yourself back. There's so much to be said for following the instructions. Just doing the roadmap. Don't don't add to it. Don't subtract. Just do what you're supposed to do. Sounds so simple, doesn't it? (laughs) So what are God's roadmap for? What's his roadmap for living? What does he tell us to do? What direction does he tell us? As I was praying about this, I just, I came to, it's a very familiar verse. One you've no doubt heard before. I mean, we've sung this verse over the years, there's many ways that we've applied this verse, but I want to take a look at it first in, in three different versions of the scriptures. This is the English Standard Version. It says, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice 
and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And then the New Living Translation says, No, O people, the Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. But my favorite version in this verse is the message. And it says, but he's, I love this because it's almost like he's saying, you know better. Here's what he says. But he's already made it plain how to live, what to do, what God is looking for in men and women. It's quite simple. Remember, just like following instructions. Do what is fair and, and just to your neighbor. Be compassionate and loyal in your love. And don't take yourself too seriously. Take God seriously. So let's take this down and just try to, try to look in it closer, just a little bit closer. The first thing he says is to do justly. And I know you know what that means. It means to act with fairness and honesty and integrity. But here's the thing about justice and what is just. It seems like in our world today, everybody has a different standard for what that is. But there is a royal law of love that God puts out there that nobody objects to. When you do what is truly just, that is just. You know, the thing is, most of us have a sense of fairness and right. And maybe you've noticed this, even children, there's times where you can violate their sense of justice. Have you ever seen this? And we all do it. Like, for instance, if a, if a child is sitting at a desk or a row of chairs and they get up to grab something and somebody else sits in their seat, what do they say? You, you sat in my seat. It's universal. We have a sense of right and wrong for most things. What happens, though, in our world is eventually you override that natural sense of right and wrong that God put there. And the more you override that, the easier it is for you to change your values of what is right and wrong. There's an old saying that says, honesty is the best policy. Let me just change that a little bit. For Christians, it should be honesty is the only policy, not just best, but only. I mean, as Christians, we should be the ones that are the most just, are the most honest, are the most fair, have the most integrity in everything we do. What it really comes down to is a heart issue. When he says to do justly, it's a heart thing. Let's look at a couple other scriptures that he, for instance, in Psalms, it says, you desire truth in the inward parts. Justice has to come from within you. Not something that you do just because somebody's watching or because it's required, but it's something that's who you are. In Proverbs 4.23, should be 4.23, not 24.3. A little dyslexic sometimes. Keep your heart with all diligence for out of it springs the issues of life. When you violate the sense of justice that God puts in you over and over, it does start to, to deteriorate that flow of life that God has put in you. It's almost like you're diverting a pure stream into something else. And once you go that way, it, it needs to be, it takes almost an act of God to change those things. Notice too, when it says do justly, it's a decision you make, a decision. It's an act of your will to do justice. You choose it. You choose to do justice. It's not just random acts of kindness, which are wonderful, but it's intentional. You intentionally do justice to everybody you can find. It's about integrity. 
doing what's right in the dark, no matter what. No matter what. Uh, recently, a few, people, a few times we've mentioned this in the main auditorium, I think, and then a couple people have talked to me about this, but there's Pascal's wager that says, if I live as a Christian all my life, and then in the end when I die, I find out it's not true, what have I really lost? Because I've lived life well. I've had great relationships, great friendships. I've lived wholesomely. What have I lost? And on the other hand, if I live rejecting God and then find out I was wrong, I've lost everything. And this is the same way. When you choose to do this, it's about integrity and doing the right thing because it's the right thing. One of the most often cited reasons for atheism and people who reject Christianity is hypocrisy. And you know what hypocrisy is, but I came across this quote by the great theologians from DC Talk recently. It said, <laughs> it said the greatest problem with Christianity today are people who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, but deny, them, deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And what it does is it allows them to reject everything else about Christianity because you have not lived it out. The next thing he says in that verse is, is to, um, to love mercy. To love mercy. I know we don't often do this, but it's interesting. There's times where the same word in Hebrew or Greek, but in this case Hebrew, has been translated different ways in the, in the Bible based on the context. That's how often they would do it. This particular word for mercy here could also be translated as tender mercies or loving kindness or steadfast love. That's the kind of love that, that is credited to God that it often says man struggles with because it's an enduring type of love that we, a lot of times, you know, we have limits to our love, don't we? I mean, there's times where we care and we care and we care, but then we get tired. He doesn't. There's times where we care and we care and we care and people offend us too many times and we say, okay, that's enough. We don't have to say it verbally, but in our heart, our heart hardens. His never does. This word for mercy here is a word that goes on and on and on. I also notice that when he says to love mercy, he's not saying have mercy on people, but he's saying to love mercy. <clears throat> that's a, there's a difference. I have to be honest, there's times where I have mercy on somebody and I don't want to. I don't think they deserve it. Or I don't think that what they've done or maybe what they've done in the past makes me feel like I don't want to extend mercy to them, but I know I should, so I do. That's not what this verse is talking about. This is a whole different position of your heart. Again, it's not just acts of kindness that are random or whatever, or because we're being obedient or compulsory, it's because we love mercy. That's different. I guarantee you, if you know somebody who loves mercy, you want to be around them. You want to be around them. On the other hand, the converse of that, you don't want to be around people who don't love mercy. You don't. You know who I'm talking about. You probably thought of somebody, sadly, because there are people in our world today who are tough to be around because everything is hard. And on the other hand, this kind of thing, this loving mercy is something that will just spread the love of Christ in a way that nothing else will. It will break down a cold heart 
break down a wall, melt a cold heart, like nothing else will. It's almost like the picture of unexpected kindness that we see in a lot of Jesus' parables. Have you ever noticed that about Jesus? He was such a master storyteller. I don't, and maybe you've done this. Maybe you've studied storytellers. Storytellers, you know, and it's kind of a lost art in a way. I guess our preachers do it and different people do it. But in some cultures, storytelling is a big deal. It's part of their culture. And maybe some of your families, you know, and, and some of you are good at telling stories. I'm looking around the room and just laughing just because some of you are great joke tellers and storytellers. But as Jesus tells stories, here's one of the things. Think about this as he tells the parables. As he's telling parables, he's putting them in a context that's be familiar to them. Often, you know, most of them were, it was an agrarian society. Farming was common. Herding animals was common. All this was common to them. So if Jesus was in our day today, he would tell these stories differently. But in that day, he would tell those stories in such a way that people in the crowd would start to identify with characters in the story. And as a storyteller, that's what you want to do. You want to draw people into the story. You want them to relate to somebody in the story. So when he's telling the story of the Good Samaritan, they're thinking, I know somebody who did that to their father. Or they're thinking, I know somebody who squandered their inheritance. Or maybe they're thinking, I'm the elder brother and my father overlooked my faithfulness and favor to somebody else. Or maybe they're feeling like the father and one of their children did that to them. But either way, they're relating to people in the story. And then here's what Jesus does, that unexpected thing. What he does is he turns those stories, and all good stories do this, where you have some kind of a, some kind of a plot twist or some kind of a... And that's what makes a joke funny is when it's something unexpected or something you didn't see coming. So in the Good Samaritan story, the one, the one that was the most unlikely one to be the kind one, to be the hero, was the Samaritan. The one that everybody looked down on. Oh, I just mixed up two stories there. Both of those stories do it, though. Think about the prodigal son and how that story twists. And when it twists, you have, a, you have a Middle Eastern father running to the son who should be shunned and punished. Instead, he opens up his arms to him and welcomes him back in. And the way the story turns is the, the, the religious rulers, the prophecies and Sadducees and all of them who were standing there in judgment, they realize, oh my goodness, we're the older brother. We're the ungrateful older brother who can't be happy about these sinners coming to to salvation. They see themselves in the story and Jesus twists it around. It's unexpected grace. The same as in a good Samaritan. And think about the woman caught in adultery. Again, I don't know if people, I mean, that wasn't a story he told. That was an actual situation. But even in that situation, he shows compassionate mercy that the Jewish establishment of the day didn't see coming. That's not what people expected, but that's who Jesus was. That's the kind of mercy. He loved mercy, and he wants us to love mercy. It's easy to be very judgmental, isn't it? And hear me carefully here, because I am not one who says, you know, it seems like often Christians are, are criticized and they'll, people will throw the Bible back at us and say, the Bible says not to judge. And every time somebody says that, I kind of look at them and I think, obviously you haven't read that whole story. It actually does say to judge over and over and in many places. What it says is to not be a hypocrite in your judgment. But regardless, this woman caught in adultery is a situation where 
We may see someone's lifestyle and think, oh, I can't believe they live like that. That's horrible. Instead of being merciful and loving mercy. Our first response as a follower of Christ should be compassion, not judgment. Should be a deep sorrow at the sin they're walking in and the destruction of their soul. That's where our hearts should go, not to, not to judgment. Think about the twist of the thief dying on the cross. Who would have thought if you were hearing that story that the God of mercy would extend mercy as Jesus himself is dying on the cross, and yet he does. This kind of mercy, this loving of mercy is totally other-centered. It's not about us. It's about others. To love mercy means you put them above you. To love mercy means you look out for the, the needs of others before you consider your own. To love mercy means that even when your own sense of justice is violated, you love mercy and extend mercy. That's going way, way, way beyond what any of us would expect. Not only that, Scripture is very clear about this. It should be motivated by gratitude. Because the fact is, we're all recipients of mercy. And that should motivate us and turn us around and to say, I've received more than I deserve. And it's out of that sense of gratitude that I now extend it to you. I didn't deserve it. You don't deserve it, but I'm giving it to you. That's how it should be. We, live, we serve a merciful God that, that gave us mercy when we didn't deserve it, and he's extended it to us, so we do it. One of the Beatitudes I know you're familiar with, be, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Then in, Peter wrote, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tenderhearted tenderhearted. That's what this is. It seems like this would be our natural response, but it's not. It's just not. Jesus put it like this. We call it the golden rule, but he says, do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. You, you may be aware that this golden rule, this, this idea had been around actually in other ancient literature. The difference is that when Jesus states it, see the way, the way it was in other literature, it was, it's, it was said like this, whatever people do to you, do it to them. Not the same. This is different. This is different because this is proactive. When I typed that in, I thought of the face cream thing, but This is proactive. This means you do it first, no matter what they do to you. You do it first, no matter if there's any return or expectation of return. You do it first, even if they haven't acted nicely to you. This is different. This means as a Christian, you put yourself out there and you risk everything by giving even before you receive and giving whether or not there's any guarantee of receiving back. This is tough. You're going to love others and do unto others just as you would want to be treated. It's hard though, isn't it? Sometimes I'm, I'm the friend who always calls. Is anybody else like that? And I've had people ask me sometimes, why do you call? They haven't called you. 
Do you know why? Because I want the relationship. I'm going to do it. I want to do it. But this is what we're talking about here is way bigger than that. What this is talking about is you extend mercy, not no matter what, because it's the right thing to do. The word mercy is used nearly 300 times in the Bible. Grace, 176 times. Forgive, 112 times. I think to fully understand it is to understand that it's, it's the thread and the story of the gospel itself. We, we actually become that projection of Christ and his love in every, every situation. What he did for us, we then do for everybody else. And we could never, I mean, I hope to the Lord that you never go through what he went through. But I know you know the story, the passion. I just read that through again in my Bible reading the last few days. And I was struck again by all the torment Jesus suffered at the, very, at the hands of the very people he created. It just blows my mind sometimes to think about the God of the universe would come and endure that for us. The humiliation, the, the pain, the, all of that. And why? To extend mercy. Because he loves mercy. And so much so that he says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And when he said that, He wasn't just saying that to the Roman soldiers or the Jewish leaders or the Jewish people that were ranting and raving. I really believe he was saying that as a statement of all humanity. That in a lot of ways, we don't know what we're doing when we're sinning against him so deeply. It's almost like we can't fully comprehend what our sin does to him and what how much it pains his heart. Those of you who are parents, sadly, it happens early and often, but you know how painful it is when your child blatantly defies or disobeys you. And there's times where they do it in such a way that it's not as if it's just a convenience for you. It wasn't like you told them to walk on this side of the room instead of that and it didn't matter. Most of the time, it's things that you, you're doing it for their own good and you're saving their life. So it hurts your heart, one, because you love them so much. Another way it hurts you because you wish they would obey just out of love and care, but they're little people just like we are and they're defiant and do all that. But it also hurts your heart because you know what's ultimately best for them and you forgive them because you know they don't know what they're doing. And yet we encounter people every day who need that measure of mercy from us that's been extended to us. The last thing he says in there is walk humbly with your God. Those first two requirements, interestingly enough, were human relationship requirements. Isn't it interesting that God often, almost always, defines our relationship with him as as based on how our relationship with each other is? You can't have one without the other. I do not believe in monasteries or monks or any of that, or pulling out of the world. I don't believe in that. I don't think that's what God ever intended. Because all the time in Scripture, what you see is him measuring our relationship with him by how our relationship is with other people. So that's why the first two things he says is to do justly and then to love mercy. But then comes the relationship with him, and he says to walk humbly with our God. First thing I want us to notice is the fact that that walking implies movement. It implies you do something. A relationship with God is not a passive thing. 
It's not something that just happens. I, I remember um, studying osmosis in, col- in high school first and then college, but you know, the idea that something would just be absorbed and passed through a membrane into us. And I remember having a stupid thought as a high school kid, wouldn't it be cool if you could just, I know this is stupid, but just lay your head on a book and it would all soak in. <laughs> wouldn't that be cool? I know, but it doesn't work that way. And it doesn't work that way with God either. It's actually an active relationship. You participate in the relationship. It's not something that just happens and you are near it or you're by it and it soaks in or rubs off or any of that. It's something that you participate in. And the more you do, the more you get. The more you invest, the more you get back. <laughs> I remember to hear this story about this guy. <clears throat> His wife was complaining to him. He says, she said, honey, you never say you love me. You never. And he said back, he just said, look, I told you on our wedding day, I love you. If it ever changes, I'll let you know. <laughs> Horrible, isn't it? <clears throat> it doesn't work that way. I like the positioning of this too. Walk humbly with your God. Because really the only way to have an accurate and a, a correct positional relationship with God is one of humility. That's it. For you to really realize who he is. And I really believe this, that the more you know who he is, the more you get humble. The more you have a picture of his greatness and his majesty and what he's done for you and sacrificed for you, it can do nothing else but make you more humble, not arrogance. You know, the human heart is one of those things, though, that's, that's immeasurably arrogant, sadly. And I know... There's this friend of mine, he, he shares Christ on college campuses all the time in his spare time. He is a, he's an engineer, he, work, he lives in L.A., and so because he's in L.A., he likes to go to all those big schools, UCLA, U, uh, USC, all those Stanford, all those schools, and he'll debate anybody. And what he says is that most of the people, he, he can tell right away what their objection to Christianity is. He says that the people who you can usually get through to are those who are just ignorant. They just don't know. They've never been exposed to the truth. And they're open to the truth. They just don't know. He said, but the sad thing is, most of the people, either they have a really uh, independent streak, they want to do life on their own, they don't want help from anybody. But the worst, he says, is the arrogant. And he says, most people are like that. Especially in those environments. They feel like they know better. They don't need anybody telling them what to do, especially a book or a God or somebody else. They're going to live their life just the way they want to. Does that remind anybody of the Garden of Eden at all? (laughs) I can do this by myself. I can eat of this tree and I will have the knowledge of good and evil and I will do it for myself. But you don't really come to God that way. As I said, when you have a full picture of what he's done, you can't help but come to him in humility. Look at Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It is by grace we have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. None of us could be good enough. None of us can get there. None of us can be shiny enough. It just won't work that way. In 1 Peter, he says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And James says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. For this to work, I I made a couple of observations here. 
If we're going to really walk humbly with God, the humility is the first part, but the next part is that active walking. And what I had a picture of is, is have, you ever know, have you ever tried to walk with different people? You know, some people have different paces or maybe their legs are longer, or shorter, or, or maybe they just have a certain gait that they're comfortable with or whatever. But I noticed one thing about walking with people is the first thing is you have to be going in the same direction. I know it sounds stupid, right? But I thought we could start at the most simple, obvious thing. If you're not walking in the same direction with God, you're not going to walk humbly with him. You're not going to be with him. The thing is, you need to figure out where he's going, and then you align with him. Do you see that juxtaposition? You align with him because he's going in a direction. You need to find out what that is, and then you need to go with him. So you need to change your course to match his if you're going to walk with him. The next thing that's kind of obvious too is you need to get in step with him. You need to match your pace with his pace. Now, there's been a lot of times in my life where I've thought, God, I know this is what you want to do. Could you do it a little faster? You ever felt that way? Or maybe on the other side, maybe things were rolling so fast and you said, God, please, I can't keep up. I need you to slow down just a minute. Regardless, you need to match your pace with him. And I hate to say this this way, but you need to match your pace with him. You're not in charge of this. He is. And when you realize that, and if your heart is one of humility with God, then you're going to want to match your pace with him. So you're going to be aware of his pace and walk with him. You walk with him. You know how you get to know that? By spending time with him. Time with him. And the more time you spend with him, the more that that becomes a natural thing and a natural course of events. Uh, many of you have done this like I have, but there's, there's some classes I took in college. And, <clears throat> you know, when you take a normal semester class, it can last 15 weeks typically. Or I know I went to one college where it had, they had quarter system, so there were 10-week quarters, but normally 15 weeks. But then sometimes you might take a summer class or we had a Jan term class. And then what you do is stuff all of that into three weeks. So I did that with a couple classes. One of them was a C.S. Lewis seminar where we were reading 300 to 500 pages a day. <clears throat> and I love, you know, when you go to Bible college, it's comical in a way because they play on that whole Christian thing. So we would have to turn in a three by five card. I certify that I have done my reading for today. <laughs> and they would collect those and say, you realize this is on your honor. You don't know like that. But anyway, what happens is when you read that much of one author, it's really weird. You start talking like them. I mean, he's British. It took me a long time to spell correctly after that. Well, I did it today a bunch of times. I wrote surprise wrong like three times today. It's just, it just gets in you. Spending time with God is the same way and even better, way better. The more time you spend, the easier it will for, be for you to pace your walk with his walk and to see what he wants to do. The next thing you need to think about is your destination. Maybe you've been walking with someone and maybe you disagreed about where to go. Someone's got to be in charge of that, right? How far you're going to go. You're going to go around the block twice, once, halfway, whatever. You've got to decide that. But the thing is, he has a destination, and you need to figure that out and decide to get on board with what he is doing. The last thing is, again, obvious, <clears throat> and that is this. You need to be working in the same power, and that power is not yours. It's his. 
If you're going to walk humbly with your God, that means you're going to submit to what he's doing, where he's going, the pace he's going at, and then work in his strength, not yours. Now, that's a difficult thing to figure out because he gives us the strength to accomplish what he's called us to do. But there's a lot of times where we're working so hard, so hard, and God, why isn't this working? I'm trying so hard, and I'm doing this. And I've heard him whisper to me, that's because you're trying, and you're not letting me work through this. God has a better way, folks. He's got a plan, and his way is better. Always, always better. You know what all this, this verse reminds me of? You know, as we read that earlier, let me read it to you again. I didn't, I didn't put it on screen again, but I want to read that message version because I liked it best. And it says, it says, it says, it says, it says, but he's already made it plain how to live, what to do, what God is looking for in men and women. It's quite simple. Do what is fair and just to your neighbor. Be compassionate and loyal in your love. And don't take yourself too seriously. Take God seriously. You know what that reminded me of? It reminded me of love God, love others. Didn't it remind you of that? <laughs> love God, love others. So I wanted us to look at that Matthew 22 passage. It says, Jesus replied, you must, when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So David, would you put some music on? I want us to think about this for a minute, just in your own heart and mind. What I'd like you to do is survey today. Your day. Just shut your eyes for a second. Let me ask you, have you done justly today? If you have not, this is the perfect time to make that right. If there's an area where maybe you made a compromise or maybe you had an attitude slip and justified it and said, it's okay, I deserve this or that. or Maybe there was something in your heart and mind where you felt, on the one hand, like you just, you couldn't help it, but you knew and you know now the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart and you know that you did not do justly. You can fix that tonight. Let me ask you in the next question. Do you love mercy? Do you love it? Do you love it? Do you, do you love mercy? When you see people or a situation or something comes up and someone offends you and does you wrong, is, do you love mercy? Is your first thought and inclination to extend the mercy that you have been given? If not, I have good news for you tonight because our God is in the, in the business of making us more like him. He is continually working on us to turn us into the image of his son and he wants to create that in you tonight. The last question is, are you walking humbly? Are you, are you walking in his pace and in his way? Have you considered his direction and, and where he's going and the possibility that you need to alter your direction, alter your pace, and line things up with him and what he's doing. I'm going to open this, this whole auditorium for prayer tonight. If you want to pray up front here, if you, want to, if you wanted to um, walk around or pray in your seat, 
I want to give you a moment to consider those things before the Lord tonight. If you have done injustice or not acted justly, I invite you to clear that up before him tonight. He loves to make you clean. He wants a deeper and a better relationship with you than you could ever, ever imagine. If your natural inclination is not to love mercy and extend mercy, tell him that. Just be honest. He already knows, and he wants to correct that in your character and change who you are. And the same with walking humbly. If you have questions about that, spend some time speaking to him tonight about that. If things in your life don't seem to be going the direction or don't make sense, let him make sense of that tonight with you. Spend some time with him tonight. I invite you to pray. Father, bless you.